Good morning. Be opening your Bibles this morning to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. Before I say another word, I just want to thank God for Maynardville Fellowship. Love our church. If you've done much visiting from church to church, you'll undoubtedly find a common phenomenon. The average age is quite old. Often in the 60s, isn't it? Many churches are in danger of closing their doors in the next 15 to 20 years. If a, cup, if a couple in the fruitful years of childbearing darkens the door, these older members pounce like pumas, don't they? Just hoping and praying that some young couple will come and get a youth, a youth group started so they can reverb, you know, revitalize the church. Manorville Fellowship does not have that problem. I recently joked in a sermon that we had a, approximately 120 people at Manorville Fellowship, 93 kids and 27 adults. This week I actually took the time to calculate the actual numbers. In reality, we have 133 regular attenders. We're not here on the same day, all of us, very often, but 133 that are regularly here. It's no surprise to see. Of those, 70 are children of adult members who have not yet left the home. That, leads, that includes three individuals that are over 18, but they've not left and established their own residence. So 70 of those and 63 adults. So we are indeed outnumbered. Not by many, but the adults are outnumbered. Good thing we're bigger. <laughs> couples, 63 couples are married heads of household. Praise God. But in the midst of uh, this occasion of praise, do we parents of these children not feel an, an enormous burden as well? Don't we? Every human began in a God-ordained parent-child relationship. And let's fight the tendency to glance over this truth and let's actually think about the implications of it. God empowers human parents to partner together in the creation of a new being. And unlike all the other creatures that God created, our offspring comes into the world as rational, immortal beings. Allow that truth to set on you for just a moment. The Boys and Girls Catechism, question number 19, it says, Do you have a soul as well as a body? And my children respond, Yes, I have a soul that will never die. What a beautiful but heavy truth. How solemn and how high is the calling of parent. Parenthood places an exclamation mark on that whole created in the image of God thing, doesn't it? That in, in what way could we image God more than in the ability to bring about an immortal soul, to bring an immortal soul into the world? Not even the angels in heaven have this duty, this ability, or this responsibility. The mysterious reproduction of a rational soul should fill you with awe when you begin to think about it. The thoughtful parent must look in the face of their baby of their toddler or their child and realize that beyond that physical body lies an immortal spark which he has kindled. And he can never extinguish it. 
By the hand of God, the parents have participated in a miracle and brought forth something eternal. Not even God Himself will do away with a soul once that life is conceived. So mom, dad, understand that you have lit, in the words of R.L. Dabney, you have lit an everlasting lamp which will burn on when the sun has been turned into darkness and when the moon has been turned into blood, either with the glory of heaven or with the lurid flame of despair. But it will, make no mistake, go on forever. Who's sufficient for these things? Who? Who can bear such a heavy weight and burden? From where can we draw comfort or encouragement? And from Scripture, of course, we get this great encouragement in Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. We're going to look at multi-generational cursing, the extent of that curse and the terms of that curse. And we're going to look at multi-generational blessing, the extent of that promise and the terms of that promise this morning. And let's begin with multi-generational cursing. Starting at verse 8 again, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Let's consider again these withered, dying churches that I mentioned in the introduction. What happened? Why are there so few people in these churches? Why are there so few families in these churches? If the problem is merely so is the problem merely sociological or is there a spiritual root to the decline? Make no mistake, the decline is evidence of the chastening hand of God that we see that all through our society that we are in a society that is becoming decreasingly Christian generation after generation. And it's been going on for a while now. The sins of our forefathers impact future generations. Read a statistic recently about kids in their early 20s or young men in their early 20s and 43% either didn't believe in God, didn't know if there were a God, or didn't care if there was a God. What is the extent of this curse? Verses 8 through 9 tell us, The Lord your God, I'm the Lord your God, and I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations. You might not think this is fair, but God's not concerned with your concept of fairness. You're not God. He is. Amen? What He reveals in His Word is true whether you find it fair or not. 
Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? God forbid. Absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Who are you? It says in verse 20. Who answers, O oh man, who answers back to God? Shall the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? As we will see, the emphasis here is on the extravagant mercy of God, though, in, verse, in verses 8 and 9. The extent of the curse is only to the third and the fourth generation. But look forward, just a, a foreshadowing to the extent of the mercy, right? The, the loving kindness is to what? Thousands. The sin can go to the third and the fourth generation. But where does the mercy go? Thousands. Like it or not, the unfaithfulness, though, of Christian parents has repercussions on our children and our children's children down to the third or fourth generation. That's not my opinion. That is the word of the living God. Amen? You are not saved by your works, but your works do matter. What we do on this earth does matter, and it matters and echoes all the way into eternity. What you do today matters. What you do tomorrow matters. It matters. For some reason, we're ready and willing, even insistent concerning the Christian's responsibility when it comes to the evangelization of the unbeliever in the community or in the mission field. We recognize, oh, we have to get the gospel to him because it matters. But we, we seem to want to downplay it when it's our own children in our own household. Brothers and sisters, if it matters to the nations and the community, you better believe it matters day to day with your own children in your own household. It matters. Whether you accept this truth or not, the parent who ignores the truth and violates his conscience makes himself responsible not only for his own destruction, but for the probable destruction of the children that God has submitted to his guidance. Take heed, parents, how you hear and how you behave. Not only for your own sakes, but for the sake of your children. Consider the Scripture's consistent insistence that it's a shame for parents to have disobedient, rebellious children. There's a correlation between shame and a lack of appropriate discipline. Proverbs 29.15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his way brings shame to his mother. You all seen it, haven't you? The pesky kid that pitches a fit and you think, Man, they, that person needs to get control of their kids. That's not a wrong impulse. That's true. And it's a shame to you when you're not getting control of your children. When children are disciplined the way that God requires, the result is wisdom. When children are neglected and disciplined, the result is shame. Why shame? Because the results would have been different had the behavior of the parent been different. Your behavior is wrong and it's producing wrong behavior in your children. I punched mothers first this, this morning because I was being nice on Father's Day. But Scripture re requires that I punch you too. So this verse says that it, a, a child who gets his way brings shame to his mother. But there's a correlation between a man's friends and his father's leadership. When a man's son begins running with the wrong crowd, it's a shame to his father, the Scripture says. Notice that the father is not said to be concerned about his son's friends, but rather shamed by the friends. Listen, Proverbs 28, 7. He who keeps the law is a discerning son, but he who is a companion of gluttons brings shame to his father. You should tell your children the kind of friends to make and who to be around. And it's a shame to you when they're gravitating to the godless and the rebellious. It's a shame to you. 
A lazy son also, the Bible says, is a shame to a father. Children are not just to be disciplined for bad behavior. They're to be trained and disciplined in the joys and rewards of hard work. That's something greatly lacking in our society today, isn't it? If they're not, it's a shame to their parents. Proverbs 10.5 He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings, once again, shame to the parents. Why should one man be ashamed of his son's laziness? Because as a father, you're responsible to shoot this arrow out where it should go. The son should have been taught to love honest work, and he wasn't taught. So it's a shame to the father. A son who dishonors his parents is a shame to his parents. Parents are required to bring up their children in all the laws of God. And one of those most basic laws is that they honor their father and mother. When they tell you no, run from you, don't do what you say, disrespect you, roll their eyes towards you, it is a shame to you because you've not disciplined them appropriately. Down to those things. I'm just letting it pass because I'm showing mercy. Show mercy by disciplining them out of that. That's the mercy. You're letting them go toward destruction by not doing discipline. And it's a shame to you. And a destruction to your own children. He who assaults his father and drives his mother away, it is he is a shameful and disgraceful son. These are hard truths in the beginning, guys, of this sermon. But such parents are ashamed because they have everything to do with the existence of the disobedience in their children. The Scripture teaches a direct connection between how children are brought up and how they turn out. When God-fearing parents are confronted with a God-defying child, shame is an entirely appropriate response. And it's in this shame the parents are acknowledging that they're responsible for what's happened. In our culture, parents excuse themselves by saying, Well, we did everything we could. Have you heard it? No sinner has ever has the right to say anything like this because no one of us have ever done anything to everything we should. None of us. We can never say that. Furthermore, the claim is glaringly false. The children were often taught, not taught to pray by their parents. They were not consistently taught the Word by their parents. In most cases, they were educated by the priests of Baal down at the local government school. Amen. And often they were not biblically monitored, corrected, or chastened by their parents. The fact that we continue to be surprised at the results of our parental disobedience and neglect is a real problem. It's not only the parents who excuse themselves, but others join in in their unbiblical comfort, don't they? Parents don't just say, well, I did all I could. When parents are grieving and struggling with an apostate son or daughter, the natural and appropriate reaction on the part of the parents of this wayward child is embarrassment and shame. Isn't that what we just saw in those scriptures? It's right. But Christians hate to see anyone feel bad, so they attempt to help with a lying comfort. Guys, if you're, if you're lying in order to comfort somebody, you're still lying. Did you know that? For the first time in their lives, these parents are taking responsibility. They're saying, this is our fault. And their friends hurry to comfort them saying things like, no, this could happen to anyone. You were good parents. Don't blame yourselves. We seem to think that the great commandment is, thou shalt always and only feel good about thyself. Did you know there's a place for mourning and contrition in the Christian life? Do you know that it has a primary place in the Christian life? 
that the sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That God doesn't despise those things. That He hears those things. And we want to put a salve of, no, you did pretty good. This could have happened to anybody over them to make them feel better when God offers them something much better. The forgiveness of God. The application of the blood of the Son of God in forgiveness. And the restoration of what you've broken. That He restores it despite the fact that you don't deserve it. But we want to salve their consciences. Now this isn't your fault. When Christians encourage parents with a false comfort, the shame is not really removed. It does, however, put a whitewash over it, which causes a good deal of confusion. As a result, the grieving parents are given the worst of both worlds. You've heard of the best of both worlds. They've got the worst of both worlds. On the one hand, they still feel guilty and they still feel responsibility that results from their failure as parents. But because they're taught and encouraged to deny their responsibility for how their children have turned out, they don't experience the forgiveness that's available to them in Christ. They need to be encouraged, but not by the lie that they're innocent, but by the truth that sin can be forgiven. (laughs) Why do you have to tell them they're innocent? If we didn't have a sacrifice, you'd need to tell them that. That would be the only comfort they could have. I guess we just go ahead and lie to them because we can't be forgiven. They can't be forgiven. Nobody can. Just lie to them and make them feel better. But guys, we're Christians. Jesus died on the cross for where you came short. You can tell them you're a sinner, but His grace is sufficient for you. And your prayers have power and He can turn that wayward son around. Why do we want to be liars when we've got such a great hope in the truth of the gospel? There's no need. The parents can then begin the task of interceding for their children, seeking to be used by the Lord and recovering them. But parents who deny responsibility can never experience the relief and joy of forgiveness as long as they continue to deny what the Bible identifies as their own sin. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We want to encourage them to deny their sin. What are we doing? Don't deny your own and don't encourage others to deny theirs. Just point to the forgiveness and the pardon that is in Christ. In keeping with this text, let us remember that sometimes the culpability is the result of their own rebellion toward God. We are the ones who refuse to do things that we knew we should do. Sometimes we know, hey, I knew to do better and I just didn't. Amen? But often it's a blind spot that we have because of the rebellion of a parent or a grandparent that is impact, that we've been impacted by because the correct way to believe or to live was not taught to them or modeled for them. Thus the iniquity of the father is visited on the third and fourth generation. We didn't even know we were doing wrong. How many of you have seen that in your own lives? How many of you have such entrenched patterns that you've seen it in your own lives but you still fall back in the same old patterns? I'm encouraged by Luke 12, 47-48. The slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. You'll still have consequences, but God is more gracious towards you. So if you hear in this sermon today things you're like, Ouch, Matt, get off my toes. I'm not going to. These are the few lashes, but take courage, repent, because you were acting in ignorance for so long and know that God will restore and He will act graciously toward you. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, but to the, and to whom they entrusted of Him much 
they will ask all the more. Our hope for a light punishment should be increased because we are on the far end of a cultural decline. Amen? Many of us would say we're first generation reformed, wouldn't we? I think everybody in this room that there's a recovery going on in this day and age that God's doing something. He's waking something up. Praise God for that. But we're on the far end of a cultural decline. And entire generations have been under the judgment of God in the form of cultural blindness that spanned three to four generations now. I see evidence of God opening the eyes of a generation as He makes good on His promise of multi-generational faithfulness. But we'll return to that in a minute. But now let's consider the terms of that multi-generational curse. What brings in the curse of God down to this third and this fourth generation? It is to those who hate me. Verse 9, isn't it? That's what it says. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But before you find too much comfort in this phrase, of those who hate me, I must remind you that this phrase is a Hebrew idiom or figure of speech. It doesn't mean that you, of those who despise God and throw out His name as an insult and curse Him and you know, give Him the finger. It's not talking about that. It's not that kind of despising or hating of God. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's, it, you know idioms or figures of speech. We might say, it's a piece of cake, right? If we say it's a piece of cake, we don't literally mean it's a piece of cake, do we? We mean it's something easy to do. But if we say, I'd like a piece of cake, we don't mean give me something easy to do. We want some cake, don't we? Which, by the way, you can get Thursday through Saturday at Buttercup Bakehouse. When the Bible mentions hating God, it's not referring to utter detestation or revulsion. That's not how the word is typically used. Consider with me, you don't have to turn here, but you're probably familiar with the text in Genesis 29, 30-31. When Jacob went in also into Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah. Did he love Leah? And he loved Rachel even more, right? Guys, don't marry multiple wives. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. But he had two wives and he loved one more than he loved the other. And he served with him yet another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated... Wait a minute, I thought he loved her. He just loved her less than Rachel. He did. And that's how the word hated is used in Scripture often. Loved less... Did Jacob love or hate Leah? He loved her, but less than Rachel. Notice in verse 30, he loved her less, so he loved both wives. He just loved Rachel more. Consider also, if any man comes after me, Luke 14, 26, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we need to hate our moms and dads, Jesus says. He's using the same idiom here. It's not that we hate mom and dad. You're, you're commanded to honor your father and mother, right? Loving of, of our fam, familial relations is commanded everywhere in Scripture, but we are to love them less than we love Christ. Here it's clear that we must not love our families more than we love Christ. We must not let love of family cause us to deny Christ even if our life is at risk. Our love of self, wife, husband, father, mother, brother, sisters, or children must be less than our love for Christ. The context makes it clear that hated here is being used in the same way it's used in the Rachel Leah usage. 
Another way that it's clear is in the parallel text. Matthew quotes Jesus, but he doesn't use the figure of speech. He uses the actual meaning of the figure of speech. When it has the parallel passage in Matthew 10, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There it doesn't say hates them. If you love them more, you're not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's no contradiction between these two texts. It's simply different ways of saying the same thing. So what brings on the multi-generational curse? Finally getting to that. What brings it on? Loving something else more than we love God. Ding, 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 ding. That's it. Some grievous, awful, terrible sin. Well, not like you're thinking, but yeah. The grievous, awful, terrible sin is just loving something else more than you love God. Also known as idolatry, which is the commandment that this section serves as a commentary for. Right? That's why this is in the context of, you shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That He demands that He not be hated in comparison to any other idol. That nothing else is more important to you than He is. If something else is more important to you than He is, then and there will be a multi-generational curse levied on you and your children and your children's children down to the third and the fourth generation. Check your hearts. This isn't about what you... you you're not, I, I don't do bad stuff. Do you love the wrong things? It's God number one. It's not that they're completely renouncing or denouncing God. It is simply that they want both God and the idols. And when it comes right down to their thoughts, their motives, and their actions, sure they love God, but they love the idols more. And thus God is hated by comparison. One huge problem with modern Christians is laziness. Instead of creating Christian culture, they allow outside cultural influences to take center stage in the shaping of their children. We love ease more than we love God and the propagation of our worldview into our children, so we just let them go and see where they end up. The God of laziness. When the cultural mandate for the home is abandoned, the vacuum won't be there long because this is a fallen world and those who take over the process of shaping the children are wicked people and fools who rush to fill the void left by absentee fathers and ever-distracted mothers. Dad's not even home and mom's too busy. It's ridiculous to leave children alone in order to let them learn alone and make their decisions for themselves. The fact that they're left alone by their parents at home doesn't mean they're going to be left alone. By nature, children are moldable. So they're either shaped lawfully by those commanded by God to perform the task or they'll be shaped unlawfully by outsiders. But as children, make no mistake, they will be shaped. One prevalent cultural sin has endured for nearly three generations. And I'm going to go to meddling for a minute. You're like, I thought you was already meddling. It's going to get worse. Christians have failed to emphasize that having children is both a commandment. Genesis 1, 28 and 9, 1. And like all of His commandments, every commandment He gives isn't to be mean to you. It's a blessing. Man, we've, 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 not, we've not preached that for a long time. Children, 
are a heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is His reward. His burden? No. No, that's what our culture tells you all the time. But no, it's His reward. Like arrows are in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Actually, the Hebrew actually says, how blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So he's taking an active role in making it happen. That, that The man that does that will be blessed of God. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. People say, how many kids you got? Six. I've had seven, lost one. And I'm not ashamed of it. Because I'm saying, God's blessed me with these. And you know what? I went and said one of them back, guys. If you were wondering, I like all six of you. <laughs> Christian preachers are scared to death to preach on these plainly biblical concepts because they might lose or offend a family or two. Do we need numbers or do we need holiness? I'll tell you what. Get a bunch of... Covenant producing children, covenant families producing a bunch of covenant children, and your children are outnumbering you, and you have numbers despite yourself, even though you ran off a whole bunch. The answer is self evident. As the church becomes increasingly carnal, the numbers diminish anyway. Rip off the band aid and trust God. So back to the, the childless, familyless churches from the introduction. Following the culture's lead, Christians bought the lie that children were too expensive. Have you ever heard that? They're just too expensive. Or that they're too difficult. Or that they ruin lives. They tell young adults to put off marriage, which often leads to what? Fornication and impurity. If you're not gifted with singleness, you need to be pursuing a wife. If you burn, it's better to marry than to burn. That's not my opinion either. It's God's Word. Tell them to get established first. Enjoy their life. Which implies what? That marriage and children are not God's joyful reward and blessing. Guys, I'm enjoying the heck out of my life. With my wife and my six kids. I don't have to enjoy it by myself. Getting to go around, be autonomous, do whatever I want. And be entrenched in these, these sins, these sensual sins. To have a good life. I'm thrilled so much in these circles for the children of one's youth. Notice that's what it says in our text, right? Bless the, the children of one's youth. If you must have them, put them off until you've lived a little. In the end, Christian families looked increasingly like the world, not only in how they lived their lives, but even down to the number of children they had. Like the rest of, Christians, uh, like the rest of society, Christians had the standard 2.5 kids. I don't know how that one made it when they cut it in half. And they decided they had more wisdom than God concerning how many children that they should have. So they used protection to make sure that we protected from any further blessings. Because what are you protecting from? Or, or they, they, and many got fixed, which is in reality getting torn up because everything was working just like God designed it to work prior to your choice to mutilate your body. You say, ouch. I'm sorry. We don't believe God's Word when He says children are a blessing, so we want to have as few as possible. Some people are married not even wanting to have any. Now easy, before you come at me with the power of a thousand waterfalls, I'll admit my sweeping generalization is open to exemptions and exceptions. 
There may be times when wisdom and love compels a couple to avoid conception, particularly for the health of a struggling wife who has serious health complications. But do me the same courtesy of admitting that these exceptions only prove the rule. The shrinking average family size is a symptom of the idol of selfishness, of of avoidance of responsibility, a symptom of their love of leisure, their love of amusement, their love of entertainment, and their love of material things. It's a symptom of that at the very least. In every case, no. You you can keep your exception to yourself. I'll accept it. I grant it. I've not even heard it. And you're right. That was an exception. But in general... We don't want the inconvenience of raising up immortal souls and training them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. In general, that's the thing. The kids they did have, they let others raise them. They let others educate them as they chased fulfillment and careers and stuff. Now the church is empty. These Christians love God like Jacob loved Leah. They love God. Guys, I'm not telling you they didn't love God. They loved God, like Jacob loved Leah. But they loved these idols, like Jacob loved Rachel. God is thus hated, and the multi-generational curse holds sway. I'm even seeing that reversed in the circles that we run in, aren't y'all? And praise God for it. Praise God. You know, most guarantee, somebody's got a slew of kids, oh, it's one of those Christian families. They're labeling us as a bunch of domestic terrorists. Praise God for it. Yep, we're trying to take over. Are y'all trying to take over? We sure are. Trying to fulfill the dominion mandate and, and exercise dominion over the whole earth. Almost like that's what God told us to do. Yep, that's me. Amen. But let's turn our attention away from these multi-generational curses and to multi-generational blessing in verse 10. But showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Just as we saw the extent of the curse and the terms of the curse in our text, we also see the extent of the promise and the terms of the promise. Let's begin with this extent of the promise. Showing loving kindness to thousands. What grace is right there? With regard to the effect of iniquity, he spoke of three or four generations. And then he turns to speak of thousands concerning his covenant faithfulness. We don't see generations restated in regards to the blessing, but it's implied by the inclusion in the covenant cursings. If you find yourself unpersuaded by the argument from balance that it should be in both places, we can look ahead to Deuteronomy 7.9. You're right there in Deuteronomy 5, so just flip right over. It's probably just a page over. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth... What? What's the next word? Generation. It's implied in chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. And it's explicitly stated here in 7, 9. Christian parents should anticipate... This is Doug Wilson... Seeing their children grow up knowing the Lord. This should not be seen as an oddity. The oddity should be that children fall away. It should be unusual that the child of believing parents doesn't follow their parents in faith. You say, well, why do we see the opposite so much? Because we've loved the idols more than we've loved God. And it's been given over to the generational curses following to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate God or love Him less. Than the idols. They want to see their kids saved. They're just doing it wrong. 
And there's multi-generational repercussions. But the loving kindness of the Lord, Psalm 103, 17, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. Unless you think these promises are limited to the Old Testament, think logically with me for a minute. If God was faithful to His people and they could trust Him to bless not only them but their children in the Old Covenant, why would we think that God would deal less mercifully with us who have entered into the New Covenant? Man, God sure used to be merciful in that old covenant, but He established a new and better covenant, and now He's like, hey, can't guarantee anything for your kids. (laughs) You're out of luck there. No. God forbid a million times, no. It's not less faithful. Absolutely not. But if you are one not one for thinking logically, and you demand New Testament proof text, then take courage. We have that too. In Ephesians 6, 2-4, we have the restated command from the Old Covenant, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And he attaches the covenant promise to the New Covenant here in the book of Ephesians, which is primarily written to Gentiles. So that it might be well with you. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of the promise, that it might be well with you that you might live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Note first that Ephesians is written, as I said, primarily to a Gentile audience. We see that from chapter 2, 11 through 22. And God applies the covenant promise of the law that was given to Israel to these Gentile church members. He goes on in verse 2, Honor your father, your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, so that it might be well with you, that you might live long on the earth. The clear implication is that the precious promises of the Old Testament belong not only to the nation of Israel, but also to, as we are called in the church, Galatians 6.16, they belong to us, the Israel of God. And also of note, these fathers are not commanded to attempt a distinction between elect and non-elect children. Train up your elect children in the way they should go. No, no, no. All your children. You train them all up. You bring them up and you try to disciple them in the ways of God. Every one of them. I ain't found a kid yet with an E tattooed on their chest out of the birth canal. Have y'all? We treat them all as if God's going to save them all. We trust God to be faithful to us. Christian fathers are commanded to bring up these children, all the children born in their homes in this fashion. And the process is His because the children are His. Transgenerational blessing is assumed throughout the Bible. Peter says that in in his promise in his Pentecost sermon, that the promises are to you and to your children and to those who are far off and as many as the Lord our God will call. It's quite true that this is governed by the divine will, this as many as the Lord will call. But given the numerous clear teachings of the Old Testament and several references to those promises in the New Testament, there's no reason to believe that the Lord wants to be miserly in dispensing His grace. God's not wanting to damn your children. Why did He make us one, according to the book of Malachi? Because He desires godly offspring, not just kids. God's just having a bunch of kids. Ain't nothing godly about that. It's having a bunch of kids and training them in righteousness. For covenantally faithful parents, the Lord's gracious calling of our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren is a hope in which we should rest. Somehow, in God's economy, God overcomes the cursed neglect of some derelict fathers. And at worst, after three to four generations, He starts bringing them back. 
Once there's a faithful believer in a family lineage, the Christian worldview becomes an aspect of that lineage. Some descendants may be hardened in some areas. They may be deceived by a spirit of some age. And it may bring about three to four generations of consequences. But God in His faithfulness opens the eyes of of some descendants to the inconsistencies of the worldview that they hold. And they look back to the Christian things that don't fit with the rest of what they believe now. And something goes off in their heads. Has it happened to y'all? Can you relate? They're like, hey, something doesn't work. Something's not coming together right. There's something that I don't have put together from the Scriptures right. And we start searching the Scriptures and God restores and He makes you a curse breaker. Brothers and sisters, be that curse breaker. And He'll be faithful to you for a thousand generations. I'm not going to say there's no lapses in there, but he'll always come back. The compromise will not be forever ignored. In faithfulness to some past descendants, there's a point in the relatively near future, and we say four generations, three, three or four generations is 120. If you think of a generation as 40 years, that's 120 or 160 years. And you said relatively brief. I'm talking about in God's understanding of brief, not y'all's or mine. God's faithful. And we're thinking long term. That when we pass away, things will go on, won't they? And the promises that were given even when they went into Babylonian captivity were for 70 years later, weren't they? That most of the people weren't going to be alive to see them. Especially the ones that could understand the promises that were given. But it didn't mean they didn't matter. They still mattered for the glory of God and the propagation of the kingdom of heaven and its growth. In faithfulness to some past descendant, there's a point in the relatively near future that God relents from His cursing and allows a great-grandson or a great-great-grandson to be that curse breaker. And this faithfulness will endure to the thousandth generation. Relatedly, it is an under-emphasized means of grace to know your family history and God's faithfulness to your forefathers. That's why it goes into all this in the Old Testament. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means something to them, didn't it? And it should mean something to us too, that we look back and we care about our heritage. Much of the Old Testament is simply the history of the people of God and the story of God's faithfulness to them. Despite many multi-generational seasons of unfaithfulness, God was always faithful to His people, culminating in the birth of Christ Jesus. God would never leave them there, but would always awaken faith in some subsequent generation. Psalm 78 emphasizes the importance of reversing, of rehearsing God's dealings with your family and to subsequent generations. Now we can look back in our family tree all the way back to Sir Anthony Cook, who was a tutor to King Edward IV and was part of the overthrow of, or the attempted overthrow of Bloody Mary and putting Lady Jane Grey in office. And then he was arrested and exiled. And then he went into exile and started cooperating with men like John Knox and John Calvin. That's my family history. And has it been a straight line of faithfulness all the way down through there? No, there's been lapses sometimes, probably for three or four generations. But God comes back in His faithfulness. And here we are today. Me, my brother, my sister, all worshiping together in the same church, celebrating the same Reformed faith of Sir Anthony Cook from 500 years ago. Because God is faithful. Multi-generationally so. To a thousand generations. But now moving on to the breathtaking extent of the... from these breathtaking extent of these provinces, let's consider something crucial the terms of that promise in verse 10b. To those who love me, 
and keep my commandments. The Bible is full of promises to parents. But the promises are for those parents who love God and keep His commandments. There are no promises to parents who are simply nice people. Do you know that? Man, they're just such good people. They're just so nice. I just like them so much. Surely God will be faithful and all their kids will get saved. Guys, nice don't cut it. Many nice people love God a little and love they love their Leah and they, they also love their Rachel way more. They love God, but they love their idols more. Well-liked by friends at church. The promises are not for those that are decent enough to get along with others. The promises are to those parents who believe God in the home, who consequently diligently perform what they're told to do in the home. Another way to say this is that we've, we've, we've redefined the phrase good parents to our liking, and because we all know good parents by our definition, who have children far away from the Lord, we think that God has made no promises to good parents. But guys, be rest assured, He has to those parents who have obeyed His Word in the home. What are these terms? Love God. This love God means to love God above all things. It's the opposite of what the terms of the curse were, that you hate God or love Him less than you do the idols. The outcome of failing to love God most is that you will worship and serve idols and turn away from God's commandments. Therefore, there's a direct connection between loving God and the next term of the promise, which is keeping His commandments. Those aren't two things when looked at rightly. It's not unwise to see this as one and the same thing instead of two things. Scripture regularly pairs them up. Teacher, what's the great commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. If you love God, you keep the commandments. Right? It flows naturally from it. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and that His commandments aren't burdensome, that it's a joy to get to. Keeping His commandments. God states this promise in 5.10. And then just two chapters from now, after the Ten Commandments, we've already touched on it, but He clearly echoes the same language in Deuteronomy 7, 9-11. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, and He keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation of those who love Him and keep His commandments. Once again, restated. How does your loving God and observing His commandments lead to multi-generational effect? Two things. First, your own personal obedience. Remember Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. What is that? In the Christian home, the children are under the authority of the parents who are under authority themselves. You must be a person under authority. Under the authority of God, under the authority of the church, under the authority, the, right, the rightful authority in place of the state. But you must be one who submits to the rightful authorities in your life if you expect your children to submit to you and the other authorities in their life. If you're a rebel, expect a rebel. In a Christian home, the children are under the authority of their parents who are under authority themselves. And nothing undermines godly parenting more than hypocrisy. When children see that they're expected to be obedient to the parents' authority, while the parents have no expectation for themselves, and they do the opposite of what they're told in every realm of life, including in the church, what kind of what are they going to think about authority? But also, 
instruction in God's standards. So you do right yourself, but you instruct them. Turn with me now to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. We're almost done. Be the last place we turn. Sandwiched right in between these promises is this command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Guys, do you know that means you've got to spend time with your children? You can't escape and get away all the time and they're doing their life and you're doing yours. No, you are to teach them diligently. That's a, that's a big word, isn't it? When, and, and talk with them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. To bind them, the commandments of God is a sign on your head. They shall be frontlets on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. We must notice that the greatest commandment is given in the context of a passage on bringing up our children with Christian education. Parents are to teach their children the law of God and they are to do it without ceasing. We, are he- we, we see here a lifestyle of teaching the standards of God. Education. When we consider the, how many parents today abdicate this responsibility for teaching their children with a task then taken up by unbelieving government schools, daycare centers, television sets, radios, and so forth. It's not surprising that such parents can take no comfort from the promises of God. But a mere retreat from government schools doesn't do it either. Some parents may public school their children with more God-honoring diligence than some homeschoolers or Christian private schoolers do with theirs. So before you say, I homeschool my kids, big deal. You can be just as derelict doing it that way. The involvement of parents must be active and it must be constant. Watching children grow to maturity is not a spectator sport. Children of Christian parents are to be brought up in an environment dominated by the Word of God. Parents are to be diligent in teaching their children the law of God all the time. When the children are not present with the parents, say they are at school or somewhere else, the parents are still responsible for what the children are being taught in their absence. You say, well, I didn't teach them that. If you let them go somewhere where they learned that, you're still responsible. God still says, Adam, where art thou? If the children are watching the tube, the parents are responsible for what's being taught. The teaching the children receives is to be comprehensive and godly. The same care must be taken if the family's homeschooling. Abdication is possible anywhere, including a homeschool situation with an absentee detached father or a discontented, overworked, joyless mother. I have to repent because I'm not active enough. And I'm saying, God, I'm trying to be faithful and I know I'm coming up short, but I need your grace because I'm trying. And I plead the blood for forgiveness and I ask for your spirit to help me do better. And I trust you with the souls, these everlasting sparks that you used me to bring forth. That you would save them. These covenantal multi-generational promises must fuel our obedience to God and enhance our, and direct our affection for our children. 
With a child in his lap, Jesus once said, Matthew 18.10, See to it that you do not despise. One of these little ones. That word despise, confusing word. When we think despise, we think, oh, I just can't stand you. Well, that's not what this word means. Much like hate, that's not what it means. Despise here means to think little of, to look down on, or to regard lightly. I don't think we're doing a great job of bringing the kids into the big boy conversation. I think we need to do better not only as individual parents, but as a church. That we've got members like Cole and Nate now that's going to be baptized. That we, we, we're not bringing them in. We're not hearing what God's teaching them. We're not involving them in discussions. Letting them be sharpened by the discussions of other men as they stand around. It's like they talk too briefly and then just kind of let to go to their own thing. How many of you, you want to hurry and get to some adult so you can have some deep intellectual, spiritual conversation, some deep theological thing that you want to talk about, some book you're reading, but your kids have no idea what you're reading. They don't know what you think about anything. But man, you can't wait to tell that somebody, whoever it is, some grown-up. That's despising the little ones. Jeremiah Ross is a great example. I've seen him deal with Benjamin and how well he does talking to him. And I commend that. And I want to be more like that. I aspire to be more like that myself with my own children. To talk to them. To hear their hearts. To hear what they're thinking. To take it seriously. To think with them through it. I want to grow toward that. The children. The Christian faith is not like the rides at the fair at Dollywood. You don't have to be a certain height to participate. Everybody can get on board. We need to include them all. As we bring up our children, we should descend to their level in one sense, humility. That we should be humble enough to let them matter to us. This is Doug Wilson. In order to lead them to our level, which is maturity, that we condescend to engage them, but not to engage them where they are, but to bring them to where we are, to help them become adults. This is not the same as descending to their level in immaturity. Guys, that's, that's what I do. When I want to relate to kids, I just be goofy. You know, make faces and dance around. And I, maybe there's a place for that, but I, I don't go beyond that often. I don't think of them as people, as image bearers of God who have souls that will never die, and rational beings. Sometimes not even with my own kids. I relate to them by picking them up, spinning them around, flipping them over, holding them down, snuggling them, tickling them. But I'm talking to them. Part of it, I just don't know how. But I want to do better, don't y'all? I want to do better. We don't need to descend to their level of immaturity in order to lead them to our level, which is pride. We must be servants to our children and not cater to them. We want to do what they want to do, and that's the only thing we do with them instead of involving them in something that's better, which is what we should be doing as parents. One of the central problems of bringing up children in our day is the constant temptation to underestimate their capacities. We teach them profane, irreverent little ditties instead of psalms and hymns, don't we? Baby shark, doot, 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 baby shark, doot, 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 baby. I'm sorry I had to put it in there and now you're going to think of it all day. But man, they know that. Did you know they can also learn Bible songs, scripture, hymns? That they can. We give them moralistic little stories instead of biblical doctrines and ethics. 
We expect them to act as though they have no brains or souls until they've graduated from college. We aim at nothing and we hit it every time. The education of children. This is Robert Louis Dabney and it's what I'm going to close with. The education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. It's the one business for which the earth exists. To it, all politics, all war, all literature, all money-making ought to be subordinate. And every parent especially ought to feel every hour of the day that next to making his own calling and election sure, this is the end for which he is kept alive for God. This is his task on earth. On the right training of the generation now arising turns not only the individual salvation of each member in it, not only the religious hope of the age which is approaching, but the fate of all future generations to a large degree. Train up him who is now a boy for Christ, and you will not only sanctify that soul, but you will set on foot the best, earth, best earthly agencies to redeem the whole broadening stream of human beings who shall proceed from him down to the time when men cease to marry and give in marriage. Until then, the work of education is never ending. Guys, don't despise your little ones. Prioritize. Let God be first and foremost in your affections. Love Him with your heart, mind, soul, and your strength. And because of your love for them and your love, your filial love for your children, instruct them when you rise up, when you lie down, and as you go about your when you rise up and as you go about your way. Fathers, take this seriously. Recommit. And now I bring us to some really good news. I come short. Do y'all? We're saved by grace through faith. That we feel the weight of our sin and we say, Oh, what will I do? I'd be crushed by the weight of my shortcomings. But one came and was crushed for us. That Christ Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. That He bore the punishment due to us and we say, God, I've failed, but You never failed and You died on my behalf. You bore the wrath that was due to me. Now God, help me, change me, fill me with Your Spirit, Your effectual Spirit, so I can go and undo all the mess I've done. That You can restore the years that the locust has eaten. That You can save my 50-year-old son. Can God save a 50-year-old man that's been wayward his whole life? This is God we're talking about. Of course He can. So we hear all this and we feel the weight and we have it lifted by the fact that Christ bore it all and His Spirit is sufficient to restore all things. Rest there. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, God, thank You for Your Word. Lord, thank You for these fathers and these mothers that are having children, that are raising them. That they're, 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 Lord, I can't say they're doing the best they can. Not one of us have. But that they are truly trying. That they've got many blind spots and shortcomings and, and weaknesses and ailments of the flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God, we pray that you would forgive, that you would uh, restore, that you would, you know, we've con we're confessing our sins and you promise you're faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness. Lord, we want to be a faithful generation. We want to be a curse-breaking generation. Lord, I pray that you would fulfill your promise. Lord, that you would be that curse-breaking God that won't allow a curse to go more than three or four generations to those who hate you, but that promise your faithfulness to a thousand generations to those who love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. At Manuel Fellowship, we, uh, we take the table every week.